Hello, everybody, and welcome back to episode five of Pigskins and Nylon. I'm Wally Lukashinsky, and I'm joined once again by my great friends and co-hosts, Casey Mock and Hayden Ramsey. Now, let's say hello to the boys. Casey, we'll start with you this week. What's going on in Columbus, buddy? What's up, Wally? Not much is going on, man. Just smashing on some wings brought to you by our sponsor, Buffalo Wild Wings. Nah, I'm just kidding. I wish. That'd be cool. But no, man, beautiful weather down here. I think it got up to 90 today. So I might, you know, we're getting this done pretty early. I think that I might need to go on a little walk. But what's up with you guys, man? Great weather. It's about damn time. I know all of us are pretty much in the same weather zone. So it's good to get a little bit of warmth, a little bit of sunshine here in the the spring here to get going. But Hayden, let's go over to you now. I know that you're close, if not ending, the baseball season now. How's that been going for you guys? Not great, but our last game is actually tomorrow. So going to try and finish it out, get the guys a win here. No better way to finish it with a 90-degree day. I'm going to be roasting. And speaking of the weather, my classroom at school does not have didn't did not have the AC on. And you will know as a big guy, if you're sitting in a classroom with no AC, you are sitting in basically a big puddle. And it was a nightmare. I had to go talk to my boss. She she figured out how to turn the AC on. So we got we had the AC rolling. I thought I was gonna you know stroke out, but I survived. Well we're glad to hear that you are still alive. I guess over here on my end the only thing that the good weather's great and all but it's also playoff hockey time, and this is a little different than usual because they started later, so the playoffs are going to be rolling through the middle of the summer. So right now, it's just a, we record this, and at 7, this is it's 6.10 right now as we record. You're going to notice a shift in Wally about halfway through this episode today because the nerves are already here, but the game hasn't started. They're playing the Islanders tonight, so I'm going to be a nervous wreck. I'll be editing this tonight. There'll probably be some angry points where I'll just like ignore it completely. If the Penguins give up a goal, go extra nice if they do well. So I, I don't know anything about Wally, but I am interested in Casey's B-dubs. And you need to tell everybody the go-to order from B-dubs because I have my sauce that is the absolute go-to. And I have my type of wing. We had, you know, boneless or bone-in. And I, that's a huge debate. So I, we got to hear what you, what you ordered. Oh, yeah. So today is buy one, get one boneless wing at B-dubs. So, of course, you know, I got two orders of two buy one, get one. So I got 40 wings. I got 10 honey barbecue. I got 10 Asian zing. I got 10 Parmesan garlic. And then I got 10 sweet barbecue. I mean, that was for Lauren, but I, I would eat the sweet barbecue. And then they gave me, so for each set of 10 wings, I could get two celery and carrots. So I got two celery and carrots for each 10. So I have eight celery and carrots because I had a bottle of ranch already at home. So I wasn't going to waste my money on that. But yeah, so those are my go-to. I did try blazing once with you, Hayden. And I, I didn't think it was, I mean, it was hot, but it wasn't that, it wasn't that hot. No, it wasn't that hot, and it tasted like absolute dog shit, so I highly suggest not getting that. Are you a boneless guy or a bone-in guy? Because I am 100%. Wally's going to get upset here. I am 100% a boneless guy, and the reason I am is because why do you want 
to have to work so hard to get the meat off a bone. And then you work all that way, and then it just gets stuck in your teeth all the time, and it just it, it ruins the whole you know atmosphere of eating. It should be easy and I guess easy going. All right, so I'm gonna play a little devil's advocate here. If I'm trying to smash, I'm gonna smash on boneless. Like if I'm gonna eat 25 wings, I'm going boneless because you're right. I don't want to have to you know work for my food. However, I think the chicken itself tastes better on a bone-in wing. And I don't know if another potential sponsor here, North High Brewing Company, has the best bone-in wings I've ever had. And next time you guys are here, we got to get it because it just, oh, it's so good. But yeah, so I'm, I'm a little bit on the boneless and bone-in. Wally, let's hear it, baby. See, I'm a big traditional wings guy. I was called indirectly a Neanderthal a little while ago by Hayden in text. Because I want to eat off the bone. You're right, Casey. It tastes better off the bone. There's something about it. Now, I'm not going to sit here and say I'm too good to eat boneless wings, especially when you have just basically experienced with the buy one, get one. If there's a buy one, get one anything, I'm not too good for it. But I'm going to eat go bone in more than I'm going to go boneless if I have the choice. And then you got to go with the traditional hot medium, whatever you got to do. You got to go Buffalo. Honey barbecue's the play. Asian zing's good. Garlic parm's good. But for me, it's all about those two. I'm always going to be into the barbecues or into the Buffalo sauces when it comes to wings. That's a lock for me. No disagreements on the sauces there. One last thing. My hot take about wings in general is garlic parmesan is not a good sauce, and I will go to my grave with that stance. Is it amazing? No. I can eat about two or three of them. It's just a nice little change-up, I think. I don't think it tastes bad, but it's not It's not one of the top-tier ones for sure. I think that's a good point to just, you know, change up from talking only food. Let's go into our traditional segment, our ranking segment of the Big Ten. We had a few different name submissions for this, and I'm going to go with my gut on this. I was talking to Hayden a little bit before. Casey, we haven't had a t- chance to go over it yet. We're thinking the Big Ten's Big Five, or our Big Ten Big Five, however you want to spin it. So naturally for our, I guess, first with the name, Big Ten Big Five, we'll go to the man who didn't have a say in the name. Casey, what was your list? If you guys have forgotten, we did best one-two combos now. I know for myself, I didn't go. I kind of broke the rules, but that's the glory of having your own show. We'll get to me in time. But your best one-two combo in the Big Ten since 2000. Casey, let's hear it. Yeah, so I really wanted to try to get unique with this list, and I think I did. So the best one-two punches since 2000 didn't have to be for me. It didn't have to be quarterback, running back, quarterback, receiver, you know, the traditional. Now I do have some on there, but I think one the teams will surprise you a little bit. And then I got a couple, or I guess one position. That'll probably surprise you guys, but at number five, I'm going to go, I'm going to give the 11-2 and two co-Big Ten champion 2002 Iowa Hawkeyes some love here with Brad Banks and Fred Russell. Not sure if you guys remember them or not, but they were actually a pretty sweet little duo. Brad Banks, to me, reminded me of Michael Vick, and the only reason why was because he wore number seven. Like, he wasn't that 
you know, big of a running threat or anything. I was actually at the Michigan game in 2002, and I, I remember it very well. Well, I had to look up the what where everybody was ranked, but Michigan was ranked 8th, and Iowa was ranked 13th, and they beat the brakes off of them. I remember it was pouring down rain. Iowa won like, it was 34-9, to and I left the game early. Anyway, getting sidetracked, Banks that year threw for 26 touchdowns and five interceptions and also added five touchdowns on the ground while Russell was a productive. He was a really little back, I think like 5'7", ran for 1,264 yards and scoring nine touchdowns. At number four, I'm going to go with Sean Crable and Lamar Woodley, the duo for the Michigan squad in 2006. A squad that was, you know, pretty well-rounded, but I, I think it's fair to say the defense was a strong point. That duo combined for 28 and a half tackles for loss and 18 sacks to really lead Michigan to one of the best teams in the country that year. At number three, going a little bit out of the box here again, I have the 2004 Purdue Boilermaker duo of Kyle Orton and Taylor Stubblefield. Stubblefield. I always want to put an R in that and say Stubberfield or Stubblefield or whatever. Taylor Stubblefield. He was like the Big Ten all-time leading receptions guy for a long time. Did K.J. Hill break that or was that just Ohio State? But anyway, so Orton that year went 31 touchdowns, five interceptions, over 3,000 yards passing, while uh, Stubblefield had 89 receptions for just under 1,100 yards and more than half of Orton passing touchdowns, totaling 16 touchdowns for the year. I remember that. That team was pretty sweet. I don't think they were very good. I think they were like 7-6 and six or something. But yeah, that duo was uh, pretty legit. While you got something here. KJ Hill's not number one. It still is Stubblefield. Ironically, the top three guys are Purdue. And one of them I'll get to in a second here. But go ahead, man. At number two, and for me, I think this duo could have easily been number one. But I'm going with the Justin Fields-J.K. Dobbins duo. I think that duo was deadly, really good. I think we kind of get lost, I guess, on how good J.K. Dobbins really was that year in 2019. Fields had 51 total touchdowns, completed 67% of his passes. Dobbins ran for 2,003 yards and scored 23 total touchdowns. Uh, I mean, you could make an argument that that was the best quarterback running back season duo of Big Ten history. I wouldn't, we'd obviously have to look it up, but like I can't imagine statistically that there was a better one than that. And so with number one, you could really go with many different Wisconsin running back combos here. And I saw Hayden's list on the rundown, I'm not going to lie. So I went with uh, a different combo and I went with a 2014 Wisconsin combo of Melvin Gordon and Corey Clement. That year, Gordon ran, he was unreal, ran for 2,587 yards and 29 touchdowns, where Clement had 949 yards and nine touchdowns, which combined for 3,536 yards, 38 touchdowns, 7.21 yards per carry, and the Badgers that year were pretty good outside of the Big Ten Championship and finished the year 11-3. So yeah, that's why they're my number one. I remember Corey Clement was always getting those jet sweeps in the previous years when uh, Melvin Gordon was behind like James White. He was getting those jet sweeps. It was just a fun, a fun Wisconsin team to watch for the like a three or four year stretch there. 
that's a solid list, and I'm sure we're going to have more to dissect with that in a second. But Hayden, how about we hear yours first? All right. So similar to Casey and Wally, I these were I tried to hit on different teams here, so I tried to get a little bit of everybody because, quite honestly, I think I could have made a, a top five of just Ohio State guys, which wouldn't sound great for me. Yeah, I know Casey's booing me. That's fine, and. I know we're supposed to rank top five, but my list is kind of just in general. I don't really have – it's not in order, okay? So this is what I'll start with. Number five, I'm going to go with Juice Williams and Richard Mendenhall. That year, Mendenhall had 1,600 yards, 17 touchdowns, which is you know pretty good for an Illinois running back. Juice Williams also had 13 total touchdowns that year. His completion percentage wasn't great, and he did throw – I think he threw – 12 picks that year. Not entirely great, but I think they were worthy to be on this list. Was that Sorry. the year of the Rose Bowl? Yeah, yeah, that was the year. They beat a they beat Ohio State that year. Or no, am I wrong? They beat a number one Ohio State team in Columbus is what I was trying to say. Yeah, yeah, they did beat that Ohio State team in Columbus. And I remember I was nine, nine or ten. And that game was absolutely devastating to me. I remember exactly what what I was eating for dinner that night. We had tacos, and I was so upset by that game that I couldn't even I couldn't even eat because that that was just heartbreaking to me. So next on my list, I'm going to go with Mario Manningham and Steve Breston. I think kind of overlooked. Casey said that the strong point of that team was the defense, which I mean, yeah, that's true. But if you look at the stats for that year, in 2006, Steve Breston had 670 receiving yards and two touchdowns, which, I mean, isn't, like, amazing. But then you look at Manningham's stats, and he had 703 and then nine touchdowns. So combine those two, they're, you know, about 1,500 receiving yards along with almost 20, 20 touchdowns, right? So I think... Kind of underrated, worthy to be on the list. Yeah, Breston was a uh, good return guy, real good return guy. Yeah, and that was my my next point. That guy was special teams alone made him a dynamic guy and, and somebody you wanted on your team. My next, and this is where I kind of, I don't have them in the in, in exact order, but my number three, I guess, is Chase Young and Jeff Okuda. And you know, the way we've been doing it, or Casey did it, was kind of by positions or like, you know, maybe a quarterback and a receiver. This one's a little different, I think, but those guys balanced each other so well because, first of all, Chase Young was a machine and you only had two seconds to throw the ball. Then you counter that with Jeff Okuda's skills on the outside. Chase Young had 16 sacks in that 2019 season. 16. And I was looking up Okuda's stats. He only had three picks, but a lot of that was because that Ohio State defense was so good, and people just weren't throwing the ball his way, really. So those two alone, I I mean, Chase Young mostly, not mostly, but over 50% of that is Chase Young just being an absolute wrecking ball. I do have an honorable mention. I'll mention that here last. Number two is the Olave-Wilson combo. They're going to be the best two receivers in the country. Well, they're both going to be top five this year, and they were both really good last year in a shortened season. So I'm I'm really excited to see the kind of stats 
that they put up this year. Number one, we're moving over to Wisconsin. Couple running backs here. Melvin Gordon and James White. Melvin Gordon ran for 1,609 yards, 12 touchdowns. James White countered that with 1,444 yards and 13 touchdowns. Those dudes combined for 25 touchdowns and over 3,000 yards on the ground. That is really unbelievable. That's that's incredible. And I think Wisconsin still lost like three games or four games that year. Like I think they were nine and three heading into a bowl game which was actually kind of surprising. And then for my honorable mention, and I was going to have these guys on the list. I, I didn't look up their stats just because they're an honorable mention here. But Wally was going to make fun of me, so I, I didn't include them. And the reason why is because it was 1999, so a year before our cutoff. Brandon Short and LeVar Arrington were two guys that I mostly, I mean, I was only two. I mostly remember them only in the NFL, especially Arrington. But those guys were really, really good in college, so I just wanted to say their name and make sure that they were at least an honorable mention. You both had people on that list that I didn't necessarily think about right away, but I really kind of appreciate you guys putting them on. For you, Casey, first of all, like Crable is a guy that I think that a lot of people, he gets lost in the shuffle, especially playing opposite of Woodley. And I think he, for better or worse, gets remembered a lot of times because of that hit on Troy Smith with like five minutes left in that game, where if he doesn't make that hit, who knows? We might be talking about Michigan playing Florida in the national championship, them losing by 100 there instead of Ohio State, and Ohio State losing by a million to USC in the Rose Bowl. So who knows what could have changed with that. I want to point out, though, before I get going, that mine was more of a... I didn't want to be the cookie cutter and put all the same names that we were going for. So I kind of went a little off the board. They're not necessarily best. They're just, to me, they were five that were worthy of being discussed here. So anyways, for my five, Kyle Orton. And here's one. Not not your boy. Not your boy. But Kyle Orton and John Stanford. Back in 2002 and 2003, he was kind of that year before where you had 152 catches in the 0203 span over 2,400 yards and 17 touchdowns. This was that era where Purdue was kind of a little bit of ahead of the curve with the pass happiness that we didn't get to see adapted in the Big Ten for quite some time. And I think that, realistically, that that wide receiving room that Kyle Orton had those three years largely put him in that discussion to be the high draft pick that he was in the NFL. Obviously, it didn't work out for him. But it was meriting of number five of mine. Number four, I could have went with a million of the Wisconsin running backs like you guys did. And again, this is not in any order. But instead, I wanted to give a little bit of love to the big uglies up front. Joe Thomas and Craig Urbic from 05-06 played together. Urbic was there a couple years after Joe Thomas as well. He was eventually drafted by the Pittsburgh Steelers in the third round. Joe Thomas being the one everybody remembers as the number three pick to Cleveland. Wisconsin line is always something to be kind of behold a little bit. It's always one of the best in the league. There's a reason why these guys are rushing for a combined 3,000 yards in a season. And it starts with that offensive line in Wisconsin. And realistically, I couldn't find a better one-two combo for me on the line than going with old, reliable Joe Thomas. And then, of course, Craig Urbic as well. Then go three. I went with Chad Henney just like you, Hayden. But I went a year before, or a couple years before, I should say, to Braylon Edwards. Braylon Edwards in 2014, he had 97 catches, over 1,300 yards receiving, and 15 touchdowns alone in that season. He's almost 900 yards more than the second leading receiver on the team. 
So that was just kind of a a year that just put Braylon Edwards, not to say on the map, because that's not true, but you don't draft wide receivers in the top five very often, especially in that era of football. So to see the season he did, or the season that he had, I thought was definitely worthy of a number three on here. Number two, Hayden, you already said it, Juice Williams and Rashard Mendenhall, partly probably because of the Ohio State pain I can still remember. I felt like that I need to put them on this list. And who knows what happens maybe if they don't win that game in Columbus, if we're talking about them or remember them as fondly, but that's how it goes. You win those massive games. It's a generational game for a lot of fans. Hayden, you remember, there's not a lot of Ohio State fans that can remember too many crushing losses at home to teams like Illinois. So that one was kind of earth shattering for people like us growing up. And it all started with that Illinois team. The fact they went to a Rose Bowl, you can't even dream of Illinois in the Rose Bowl today. I know they lost by quite a bit to USC. I want to say it was like 52-17 off the top of my head. But even so, it was worthy on here. And number one, again, I could have picked a million Ohio State guys. This was more for me. It was when you got to see the noticeable change in Ohio State football where it went from that ugly, old-school Big Ten style to more of the passing, offensive-first mentality. And that was with Anthony Gonzalez and Ted Ginn Jr. You saw in 4 ironically, we were just talking about that Michigan team that beat Ohio State. I mean, that was kind of a moment for Ohio State fans where you can look back and wonder the identity of the team going forward. And they did, I guess, adjust on the fly a bit when you have a guy like Troy Smith that helps. But Anthony Gonzalez and Ted Ginn for two straight years, Ohio State fans are very happy. It obviously ended not the way people would have liked to, especially in that 06 season. But for me, that was my top five. A few guys, just honorable mentions like Hayden did. That Penn State offense with Trace McSorley, Mike Kosicki, and Saquon Barkley, I felt like at least deserved to be mentioned. And then last year, even Indiana, Mike Penix Jr. with Fry Fogel and Filer. I mean, those were, it was a great little offense they had. It's a shame that it ended like it did in a short season, like it was as well. And then Connor Cook and Jeremy Langford. I feel like Langford's forgotten a lot because, I mean, he wasn't exactly the bigger name out of that running back era for Michigan State that went on to do greater and better things in the NFL, but that was worth it too. Took all I had not to make a Nebraska one-two combo with them in unrealistic expectations, but I didn't say it, so credit to me for not saying that. But anyways, any final thoughts for you guys on any of our three lists? Uh, I guess, Casey, we'll go back to you first since you've been away from the mic the longest. Yeah, I don't really have anything to to say other than I really like how we all thought about these lists. I think we all went way, well, not way, but like outside of the box enough to get a lot of people on here that, quite frankly, deserve it. Like, I, I think that, you know, I didn't even have Juice Williams and Richard Mendenhall on here. kind of slipped my mind, to be honest with you. But, yeah, awesome. I love how you had to do the Nebraska slander. As that guy's tweeting at us, an Ohio State fan on the Wisconsin or on the Nebraska page. <laughs> I love how that's added. It's just funny how timing works. I couldn't help myself. I, mean, I love Nebraska. I think obviously you do too, Hayden. We have a lot to thank for them, even to have the season we had last year. So I'll always love Nebraska. But it was low hanging fruit. I had to kind of slide it in if I could. But that's okay. So what we're going to do now is we're going to transition like we usually do to our topics now. Get a little bit of football and a little bit of basketball on the the back end of this today. But anyways, first of all, we're going to get our Ohio State talk out of the way as fast as we can for you guys. So Gene Smith signed a contract extension of four years, $1.58 million a year. 
It now runs through 2026. He's also getting $400 bonus. Is this a good or a bad move? Hayden, you're the Ohio State homer of the podcast. I guess we'll start with you, what your thoughts are on this. Take it away. So there's actually a segment of Ohio State fans that aren't very fond of Gene Smith. And I really can't figure out why. He's made two of the best football head coach hires. Hire Urban Meyer, and then he followed up with Ryan Day. Plus, he hired Chris Holman. There's some hit or miss takes on Chris Holman, but I think he's done a pretty good job. So I I think this is a good move. I'm kind of interested in the like the salary amount. I figure I thought it would be a little bit higher than what it was, but other than that, no, I I really think this is a good move. I'm a big I I really like Gene Smith. Yeah, I saw that one thing. He took a voluntary pay cut for the COVID losses, basically money wise. Wouldn't have been a substantial loss, so this would be right around the number you would expect to see. Other th- little quick note I'll add in before we get Casey's take on everything. If he does stay athletic director through the duration of this contract, he would be 70 in the year 2026, and that would also make him the first athletic director to span two full decades as the Buckeyes athletic director since Dick Larkins did it back in 47 through 1970. One of the main keys that you notice with both of those long tenures, football success. I feel like that's a big part of it. But Casey, let's hear what your thoughts are. Yeah, first off, these uh, Asian Zing wings are a little a little hot tonight. I don't know what it is. But no, I, I agree with Hayden. I, I've heard some slander toward Gene Smith, but the people that I know and listen to and the professors and coaches that I interacted with during my time at Ohio State, they all speak very highly of Gene Smith. I just, I think he's well-respected at Ohio State. And like Hayden said, I think he's done an excellent job of hiring. Not only that, holding the Ohio State coaches across all sports, not just the main sports, to the standard of athletic excellence at Ohio State really has had and and deserves. Yeah, I really don't have too much else to say. I just really would be echoing what you guys have said about him. I'm very happy as a Buckeye fan myself that Gene Smith does represent the school. I feel like he does that well. And Casey, you just said it. This isn't just a football thing. He really does hold all the programs, men or women, on either side to a higher standard. And that's been, I think, something that's been noticeable throughout. You can see the trickling success throughout the programs and throughout the athletic department. So for me, it's it's a no-brainer move. Of course, you bring them back. Obviously, it's a decent amount of change for an athletic director, but it's a big school. It's, a, it's Ohio State. This is kind of what you expect. If anything, I'm almost happy that we didn't see him go to the Pac-12 and get that commissioner job, which was at least rumored up until this last week. Well, I'm, I'm glad you kind of mentioned that because that was going to be my final point was you know, I follow these message boards and people are freaking out. They're like, Gene Smith could possibility go to Pac-12, you know, be the Pac-12 commissioner. And then a week later, he's getting his contract extension and people are like, oh, well, Gene Smith, you know, he's okay. He's all right. It's funny to see people's reactions kind of go in time, how how things work out. But I'm I'm a really big Gene Smith fan. Yeah, it sounds like all three of us are, so I guess that makes this a a little bit easier and a little bit quicker of a Buckeye talk today than we're used to seeing right now. You'll get maybe a tidbit here and there, especially going to the next story. FanDuel Sportsbook released 
some initial lines for the big games up this upcoming season. I'll just say a few real quick, Joe, that the listeners also are aware of it. But then I want to hear what your guys' main takeaways were these. Is there any of these lines that you're like, I wish that game was tomorrow because I'd put the house on this line. But here, we have 10 for you real quick. I'm going to go fast for you guys. Ohio State opens up as a 10-point favorite against Michigan. Ohio State's opening up as a 9-point favorite against Oregon. Michigan is a 2.5-point dog against the Washington Huskies. The Wisconsin Badgers are a 9.5-point favorite against Michigan. Michigan's a 6.5-point favorite against Michigan State. Wisconsin is a 4.5-point favorite against Penn State. Iowa's a a 4.5-point dog against their in-state rival, the Iowa State Cyclones. Nebraska is opening up as an 18-point dog going to Norman to face the Oklahoma Sooners. And last but not least, Wisconsin is opening up as a a 3.5-point favorite against the Notre Dame Fighting Irish. Whichever one of you want to go first, give us a line that might jump out to you and other thoughts you have. Yeah, so I made a comment next to... uh each and every single one of these, and I'll just go, th- if I'm talking too much, you guys just stop me. But it kind of, uh, to your point, Wally, what line jumps out that I'd bet the house on it? The very first one, OSU minus 10 against Michigan. Until Michigan can prove that they can even hang with Ohio State, that line should be at, at around 17. OSU minus 9 against Oregon I found a little interesting. Oregon returns a decent amount from last year's squad and they have the best pass rusher in all of college football so I think nine is a little I mean I would say it's fine now but I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised if that got down to like six or five Michigan plus two and a half against Washington not really too too sure what to think of this one I think Michigan's going to be riding high after Western Michigan blowout I think that Michigan ends up pulling this one out and so I could kind of see I could see the line maybe even being a push to Michigan being minus one. Wisconsin minus nine and a half against Michigan. October and at Wisconsin is not a good combo for Michigan football. That line might grow. Michigan minus six and a half against Michigan State. A little surprising that Michigan's a favorite since it's at Michigan State and they lost to him last year. But hey, you know what? We'll see. All right. So next, Iowa and Iowa State. First off, that game. I'm going to be really excited to watch that game for like the first time in a really long time. Iowa started out the year slow last year, but they were hot at the end. They finished 6-2. and two. Iowa State, I'm pretty sure they have almost everybody coming back next year. They're going to be a really good squad. So that game could really set, you know, set the tone for either team to have a really good year. The Nebraska plus 18 is right where it should be. They're going to get smacked. I have a couple, couple takes. First of all, I agree. Ohio State minus 10 against Michigan, I would absolutely hammer uh, as of right now. That will almost assuredly climb, I would guess, as we inch towards the game. That Michigan plus two and a half against Washington is kind of interesting to me because ABC came out, and that's going to be a night game. And so it's a 730 game, and it just seems like we know how well Michigan plays in the primetime. So I would actually be willing, I think, to take Washington minus two and a half in that. And then the last one I'll talk about is just the Nebraska against Oklahoma. I, and maybe this is just because I'm fond of Nebraska now after last season, but I think I would take them plus 18 against Oklahoma. I I actually, so I think Oklahoma is going to be really good this year, but I think Nebraska might be able to hang around 
kind of almost similar to what they did against Ohio State last year. Just hang, just hang around, you know, score just enough points to keep it under that three-touchdown mark. Wally, what do you think, buddy? Yeah, I'm going to kind of go over like three or four games here as well. I think the Ohio State-Michigan game, until we see it, Casey, you said it earlier, until we see Michigan's able to prove that they can play with Ohio State, I would take Ohio State right now at minus 10. But then right on the flip side, that Oregon game, Thibodeau is so much fun to watch with Oregon. And especially against an early on test for that Ohio State offensive line, I think it could at least be a little bit tricky, especially when we're going to be breaking in a young quarterback as well. If he starts getting hit early on, how is that going to affect the game? I think I would take Oregon plus nine, and then it's that fun, if you lose money, I'm happy, because Ohio State then obviously looked really good. And then if Ohio State doesn't win by nine or loses, at least then I have a little money to make myself feel a little better at the end of the day. But then a couple other you mentioned, I love, I don't know what it is. I think it's more of a less of a love for the Michigan team. It's more of a disrespect factor for the Pac-12. But I think at this moment, I would take Michigan money line just because I don't have any... There's nothing about Washington in that Pac-12 conference as a whole that makes me think that they're going to be able to play in these bigger marquee matchups with other Power 5 schools until we can see it actually play out that way. So I think I would actually take Michigan money line there. But otherwise, the only other game that I really wanted to touch on, I lied, I've got two. Iowa plus four and a half. Casey, you're so right. This is the most excited I've been for an Iowa-Iowa State matchup in a long time. Early on in the season, you get those rivalry games. And I always talk myself into this being a game I really am excited to watch. And then it's like nine to six in the fourth quarter. And both teams are trying their best to lose the game. So this should be a change of pace. I think this could actually be a lot of fun. I'm not sure really what I would touch right now. I think it's a really good line. I like Campbell a lot and what he's done in Iowa State, but it's a good line. Now, the Nebraska game, the only way I would take Nebraska plus 18 is if this game screams to you backdoor cover because Nebraska's, I don't know if they're going to be able to keep up with the scoring of Oklahoma to cover in this game because 18 looks like a massive number until you start doing the math in your head. We're like, all right, well, let's say that Oklahoma offense puts up a 45 spot at home. All of a sudden, that means that Nebraska is expected to score 27 points. I know Oklahoma's defense is traditionally not something that we're looking at and like pounding the table, giving them the respect they deserve, which not saying they deserve it. You get what I'm saying. I think that I would take Oklahoma to cover that game early. I just don't see Nebraska having the dogs to basically score close to 30 points in a game like that. If they're going to, it's going to be more on the first quarter emotion of a big profile game like this in what is an old-school Big 12 rivalry. So I don't know. I, I think that for me, I would take Oklahoma to cover there as well and not really break too much of a sweat. Do either of you have any last thoughts before we throw anything else? Yeah, I have a question for Hayden. So I know you kind of threw shade on there or at Michigan about their, their primetime games. I think that you're kind of primetime games on the road, yes, but when Michigan plays primetime at home, completely different team. In 2018, they beat a top five or top 10 Wisconsin, top 13 team in Penn State. I, I just, Michigan being at home, if, if, if it were at Washington, 730, yeah, I would be Washington all day. But also today, I read that the governor of Michigan or whatever said that they are expecting 
outdoor stadiums to be 100% full capacity this this fall. So there will be 115,000 people there. So I lean more toward Michigan having an advantage being at night and at home than, than what you said. You might be right. This Michigan team is so tough for me to kind of read. Sometimes I think they could win eight games, and then other times I'm like, they might only win four. Like, I, it, they're a tough team for me to read. So, you know, this game early in the season definitely will be able to adjust our uh, how we view them and how they think. My last thing is the Ohio State-Oregon game. Ohio State's a nine-point favorite. You talked about Thibodeau and him being a, a good pass rusher, which he is. But the thing that I think Ohio State fans should be optimistic about is they have a fifth-year guy at left tackle, and they're going to have a guy in year four playing right tackle, right? So I know he's he's really good, but if they can't, if they can figure out how to block block him, I think they'll cover that. If they can't, obviously it's a different story. But I just think having that experience, you know, on the end of your line is is going to be really beneficial for them. And we will see. We got a little bit of time before we have to get too worried about that matchup on September 11th this year. I will point out real quick before we do, I didn't plan on mentioning it, but it kind of is a good way to segue too into something later, is they did announce today a home and home in what, 2031 and 2032 with Oregon as well. So Buckeyes will eventually get to Eugene. It just isn't nearly as soon as we originally hoped or expected. But that's enough of a Buckeye talk again for right now. We're going to switch gears a little bit, go more into what you guys are really good at talking about, and I'm really excited to hear what your guys' thoughts are. We're going to do a little recruiting talk here to start. So Wisconsin sits right now at 76 in the 22 class with only one three-star recruit in their entire class. I want you guys to explain to people like myself why this is either a big deal or why it's not nearly as a big a deal right now. Like We know they're not going to finish 76. It's kind of like how... Rutgers was six a few weeks ago. We were talking about it, how they're going to revert to the mean a little bit. I just kind of wanted to get your guys' thoughts on the Badger situation right now as far as recruiting goes. Yeah, so for me with recruiting, I judge it based upon where other teams are. So for Wisconsin to have, what did you say, one one recruit, one three-star recruit being ranked 76th, I wouldn't say it's time to panic yet, but... Let's say they go throughout the summer and they only get maybe three, four, even five commits. That's when I would start to be worried because, you know, heading into the season with only six commits is not typically something that works better for you. And I think that this summer is really going to boom in commitments because of the player's ability to go take visits. I think that's going to be huge. So, all in all, right now, should I'd be asking questions, but I guess I wouldn't say that I would panic quite yet if I were a Wisconsin fan. Yeah, I, I'm not panicking yet either. This this next month here, June, is going to be a huge, huge month for recruiting. I mean, guys are going to be start are going to be able to start going on visits here again, and uh, you'll see things pick up. Now, j- just like Casey said, if you don't, yeah, then you're then you're in some trouble. But I fully anticipate that Wisconsin will be fine and they'll finish with their, you know, average somewhere 15 to 20 to 25 range. 
recruiting class and they'll develop their guys just like they normally do. So I'm not panicking at all. Well, and if there's a school that's proven that they can do a lot of good work in developing that 15 to 20 kind of class range, it's Wisconsin. We've seen it time in, time out. They're just, they're a very dependable program. So you kind of see that. So that's interesting to hear. We'll keep an eye on that as we go through the summer. And again, let's see if they have that five, six recruit window. When you start the season, then we can start worrying a little bit. Now, I mentioned Rutgers a little bit earlier and how they had a strong start to their class in the 22. Now, for the 23 class, Rutgers right now is looking to add another top 150 prospect, Jacob Allen, who's the number 110 nationally ranked player for that year, which is also number 11 at tackle and number one in that state of New Jersey. Shiano has obviously made an impression. This isn't the Rutgers team that we have learned to expect in the last five years or so. What do you guys make of this, I guess, momentum that Shiano has right now in that program and how fast of a turnaround should we expect? And I guess, what is their ultimate goal? Is this going to be a team that we see at seven or eight wins and they're high-fiving in the locker room? Or do you think they want even more than that? I think that expectation-wise, man, if they can get to five, six, seven wins, you know, good for them. The tough thing about getting these these recruits and uh by the way that uh jacob allen did commit today i don't know if we saw that but he committed i think it was at either five or six o'clock so yeah another top 110 guy for rutgers i think they creep back into the top 10 in the 24 7 recruiting rankings now but anyway so my my big thing for this transition that rutgers is doing i think they are accumulating a lot of talent, but the last thing that you want to do with this talent is to be like, oh my God, they got to play right away, throw them in there as true freshmen, and then just kills them because they get, they get smacked. While they are very highly recruited, that doesn't necessarily mean that they are ready to play. We've seen a lot of high-profile guys not step right in and play. And so that that's my fear of Rutgers. I think Shiano is smart enough to to not do that. And he understands how to build up Rutgers. Obviously, he did it before. But just being cautious with getting these players out there, even if they are really talented, they have to learn the speed of the game. They have to get a lot, lot stronger. Other than that, I think that Rutgers is in a great spot. I think they have the second, thir- third-rated recruiting class in the Big Ten for 2022. So... With I, I believe ten or eleven commits, so yeah, they're he's doing great, and yeah, keep it up, I guess. One thing that Casey, I don't think, did mention, and you know, he was pretty spot on with what he had to say. I think we talked about maybe a couple episodes ago. If Rutgers can keep the talent in New Jersey home, that's going to be huge for them, and that's exactly this guy's the number one guy in New Jersey. I mean, that's exactly what Greg Schiano needs to do to be able to. Bill Rucker's back up to where he wants it to be. And dude had an offer from Alabama. Yeah, ex- exactly. Yeah, if a dude, if you are, now, nah, here's the question, because we have a long way to go, is if they can keep him there, or, you know, keep him committed. Because if you have an offer from Alabama, you can basically go wherever you want to go. So, yes, it is great that they added him, but the recruiting doesn't stop. You got to keep, keep after that guy to keep him locked into your program but if he can continue to keep the talent in new jersey at Rutgers, he's you know building his way up to where they need to be no i think you guys touched on that really well and it would be good to see i think 
for such a long time, we've seen Rutgers and Maryland kind of get that they're a joke kind of stigma around them. Like it's the Big Ten. Oh yeah, and those teams that we just brought in, at least for ba- or in football sense, basketball is a different story. Now it would be great, especially with the momentum. It looks like both programs have had. Maryland's also been recruiting pretty well lately. They've shown that they can at least compete with a lot of teams out there. And you got Tua's brother in there now. Was it Talia? Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, I believe so. Perfect. Yeah. Then you have Tua's brother in there and he's shown that he has a ton of ability in his own right. So it'll be great to see, hopefully for the Big Ten's sake and the Big Ten's health, it'd be great to add those teams that had been perceived as bottom dwellers, get into that mix of the five to eight wins a year and be a respectable opponent, regardless of who they play. Now, there are a couple other quick topics we want to touch briefly on here. Back to Ohio State for a second. Ohio State took the lead today for Caleb Brown. He's a 5'11", 177, four-star wide receiver from the state of Illinois. It looked like it's – you guys would – again, you guys are the recruiting guys here. It looks like it's Ohio State and Michigan in a distant drop-off. Is that fair to say? And if that is true, how important is this? Because, I mean, Ohio State's wide receiver room is loaded – do you think that this is something that they could actually hold on to this kid in this process now, bring him into that already star-studded cast? Everything that I've read, it is an Ohio State-Michigan race. I don't think there's really anybody else that he's looking at. My thing is, anytime you can, you know, this guy's, you know, four-star number 63 player in the nation, you know, according to 24-7. Anytime you can take that guy away from your rival, that's a bonus, right? So, yeah, it is... Kind of a big deal. It's not. I'm not going to be over dramatic about it and say anything crazy, but this is the kind of thing that seems to be happening. And Ohio State, if they want the guy, they seem to be able to get him. So yeah, big deal. Not over the top, but but it's a big deal. Yeah, I agree with Hayden. You know, Ohio State has brought in one of, if not the best, recruits as far as receiver wise. The past two or three classes. And to add a top, you know, 65 guy and Caleb Brown would be, he he would fit right in and to be able to steal him away from Michigan where it looked like he was a heavy lean for a long time would be big. You know, I thought that Brown and Tyler Morris, who's a Michigan commit, another top 100 receiver, I thought that would be a pretty, uh, pretty lethal combo at Michigan. But the Buckeyes are going to have to, Stay on him because they're they're in for like I think three other top 100 recruits. They've got some crystal balls toward other top 100 receivers. So to get him on here and then to like last year, I I think it was last year Ohio State's class they brought in an insane amount of receivers, and I was like I I can't believe so many of them are staying. But either way, they they have five star Caleb Burton who's already committed. But it, it really wouldn't surprise me if Caleb Brown probably made the wiser choice and, and went to Ohio State. This is random, but I have to point out, it's been nice to have a change of pace this episode where all of the names are names that we can actually pronounce and not look like complete morons for. Because when I was looking at it the last few weeks with all these, there's apostrophes, there's vowels where they shouldn't be. And I'm like, this is insane. So yeah, Caleb Brown. And here's another one for you. Another transfer today. Going to Indiana. Stephen Carr. Former five-star Trojan running back going to Bloomington. While he didn't exactly live up to those high expectations so far in his college career, Indiana Steele's a guy that a lot of people are really high on. Could this Bloomington 
with Penix Jr., with Freifogel, with that connection, is this going to be an Indiana offense that could really bring out the most what USC wasn't able to do with Steve, I must said Derek, with Stephen Carr? Yeah, I didn't really uh, follow Stephen Carr's career that much over at USC. I do remember his recruitment and how he was a, a five-star running back. But this kind of flew under the radar for me. I didn't, I didn't notice it at all. And then I saw I was going through the transfer portal today, and I was like, "Home? Oh, what? Stephen Carr to Indiana? Uh, it, it makes a lot of sense because I believe Stevie Scott is gone, right? So I mean, that would be a great replacement for him, a former five-star guy. I'm not sure if he was battling a lot of injuries at UFC. Did I just say UFC? I meant USC. And and that's why he wasn't able to get production. But, I mean, he can't pass on a former five-star that, you know, was at USC, if you're Indiana, for, in my perspective. But, yeah, good get for him. I hope that they are able to get to their, back to their eight and four, seven and five days. Yeah, I'm just kind of tag along with Casey here. It, I didn't follow his career either. I don't know if maybe he kind of battled injuries or what, but he only ran for like 1,200 yards in his career, so in four years. But, you know, can he be revitalized in Indiana? I I guess that's a possibility to be seen, but yeah, you can't pass on a, on taking a guy like him, if especially if, if like Casey said, their Stevie Scott is, is gone. You mentioned, yeah, he's only rushed for somewhere in the neighborhood of 1,200, 1,300 yards in four years, so... I really don't know too much about him either. It's one of those problems with the whole, you don't get to pay attention to the West Coast and Pac-12 as closely as you would like to. There's just not enough hours in the day, especially for Big Ten guys like we do. But it will be fun to see. There's obviously talent there, and they've been able to get the most out of their guys so far in the last few years. It's been an Indiana team that's just grossly overachieved. And who knows, if they can keep that trend up, this could be an awesome and an exciting get for them. Now, I will transition one more time. Final little bit of recruiting touch here. Casey, we're going to go to you. Michigan's basketball, looking like they're trending to get a couple more four-star guys. You want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I was going over 247 today and noticed that Michigan got a couple uh, big-time crystal balls for the 2022 class. As we know, they had the number one class in 2021. Two top 80 overall players in the class. Seth Seth Trimble is a tall six foot three point guard that seems like he'd be a really good fit for Michigan basketball. I think that it's been I guess I haven't really thought of it too much, but off the top of my head, it's been a while since Michigan's had a taller point guard that Mike Smith, Xavier Simpson, Derek Walton Jr., Trey Burke before that. So uh it'll be really interesting if this kid pans out to be pretty good, Michigan having a six three point guard. And then the other kid is Jet Howard, Juwan's son. He's the better basketball player of the two. The current son on his team is, what is his name? Jace, Jace Howard. He wasn't a very highly rated recruit. Jet is. Jet's a top 50 guy rated at number 46. So those are a couple recruits that I wanted to touch on. And then I also saw that the apparently the, the greatest prospect since Kevin Durant and recent Michigan State basketball decommit, Imani Bates, is leaning toward playing professionally instead of college. And I kind of wanted to ask you guys what your thoughts are on prospects going to play professionally instead of at the college level. I think it's interesting now because they have the option to go to the G League, and it's not the NBA. So I'm pro-NBA 
or college, like at 18, you can go to the NBA. Whereas this G League or, or whatever the heck it is that these guys are going to, I'm not really, I'm not really sold on that. And I'll get into my reasons why, but I wanted to know why, what you guys think of that sort of trend going nowadays. I'm actually really thankful that Imani Bates isn't going to go to Michigan State or anywhere else in the Big Ten for that matter because he would have been a nightmare. No, but like you, I'm also pro. I think going to the NBA right away for college basketball or for high school basketball guys who turn 18 is fine. I don't see a problem. I'm not a huge fan of the, it's called the G League now. This is the Gatorade League. Is that what it stands for? Unbelievable. I don't know. Has there been any success stories where guys gone from high school to the G League and then, you know, signed a contract with an NBA team that's worth an amount? I believe that either this year, this past year, or the year before was the first time that high school players were able to make that jump. But as far as success stories, I think Jalen Green is one that, you know, he's going to be a top five-ish pick. But there were a couple other top recruits that made that jump, and we haven't really heard how they did or, or where they're at in the draft process, really. So, anyway, keep going. Yeah, so I guess it really comes down to where you're going to get developed better and who's going to get you more exposure because I have never seen a G League game on – maybe they're on, like, NBA TV or something, but I've never sat down and watched one or even – seen one like promoted you know but obviously with college basketball you they're on all the time you have the big tournament at the end which if you have a bananas tournament you can really improve your stock so i think it would be smarter to go to college for a year but i guess it all depends on where you think you can get developed and where you're obviously we know where you're going to get more exposure so i guess it comes down to development if you're getting coached by guys who are money yeah money but I don't think they make that much money in the G League, do they? It wasn't it like thirty thousand dollars or something. Like I don't think it was very much. Sixty, I guess. If sixty thousand dollars is worth it, but you could go to college and then go to the NBA and make millions. Oh, Penguins must have just scored a goal. Lucky bastard. I'm gonna turn it over to Wally just because I'm gonna interrupt this celebration. One nothing, boys. We're two minutes in. It's one nothing, Pent. One nothing, good guys. Let's go. Let's go is right now. I will. I'm going to try my best to rein it in. Look at this professional Wally. I'm going to- CBJ. CBJ. Yeah, CBJ, baby. But I'm trying to make Wally happy here, Hayden. And that's why I like you, Casey. Hayden probably won't have it tossed back to him the rest of the uh, the episode here. That's okay. Again, professional Wally. I'm going to go back into this for a second. Yeah, I think that they obviously came out with the rule where the players can't go directly to the NBA in an effort to protect players from going up and not being physically developed enough to get there. But there are guys like the Kobe's of the world, the LeBron's of the world. It sucks to imagine having them go play in the G League for a year to actually get that, I guess, eligibility back to be drafted. Now, I don't know. I don't hate it. It's up to the player, I guess, what's the best situation for them. It's really hard to tell an 18-year-old who hasn't seen a lot of money in his life that $60,000 is not a lot of money. I think a lot of these guys are going to be tempted by that, especially if they believe in themselves and they think that they're going to be able to make that leap. Now, I'm not going to pretend to be an NBA expert by any means, as my dog barks, bear with me. I think long-term, I think we're going to look back and we're going to see a rarity in the success stories. We don't know yet. It's so early. It's so new. 
who knows? So maybe some of these guys that needed to be developed are getting that and will end up being successful NBA pros. I don't know nearly enough to give you any like definitive belief or reason to believe that. That's just kind of the the way from the outside looking in. I've been viewing it where if you're going to the G League first, I mean, you just don't. It doesn't seem like you have that upside. But who knows? Who knows? I again, I'm an idiot. This isn't my expertise by any stretch. I'll let you guys get the final word on that before we throw it over to our final topic of the day. Yeah, no, I I kind of agree with both of you. So, Hayden, my big point was exactly what yours was, man. The exposure that college basketball gives you is way more than the G League. Like you also said, I've yet to, I don't think I've watched a G League game on television, whereas during basketball season, you have a college basketball game on ESPN almost every single night. CBS, you got every Saturday and Sunday. So to, to me, I just think that like a guy like Zion Williamson, I think benefited from playing college basketball than if he were able to go to the, the G League because going to Duke of all, of all the schools, just the exposure that he got really boosted his his draft position but yeah you know Wally I also see your point too like I'm not gonna tell a kid at 18 years old hey go get more exposure and have to pay to go to school I'm not gonna tell him to go do that and not take the $60,000 a year to you know go play basketball I see both sides I just wish they could make the jump straight from high school to the NBA, I know it, it probably damages more careers than it does produce good ones, but I just think that it'll really eliminate the guys who think that they can do it and go to the G League and they don't make it there and so that then they're kind of, you know, shit out of luck. And those guys will go go to college, then in return we get better college basketball. And then also to Wally's point, you said it would suck to have guys like Kobe and LeBron and Dwight Howard, Kevin Garnett playing in the G League. But on the reverse side of that, how fun would that have been to see LeBron or Kobe or Dwight Howard in college? Like, oh man, that that would have been a lot of fun in my opinion. I know that we were all kind of young during the, the Kobe days, but I think LeBron would have been sweet. He probably would have went to Duke. Hello, I know he said LeBron James. Yeah, I know he says he would have went to Ohio State, but dude, Ohio State was not a, you know, they weren't really as relevant back in the day. So I think it would have been hard to take him away from, from Duke, but that that's all I got on that topic. Last thing I do want to say real quick, and by the way, I do think LeBron would have went to Duke as well. But the last thing I'll say on that is you wonder about the coaching too. I'm not going to sit here and pretend like I know any of these G League coaches off the top of my head. Wouldn't you think that you would be... Sorry, there was a fight. I thought there was a goal. Wouldn't you think that there would be, uh, it'd be a better opportunity to grow under, I don't know, a Coach K or a Coach Calipari opposed to the nameless guy that's the head coach of the Canton Charge? I mean, that's one of those things that you would think that playing for an Olympic coach like uh, Coach K or or Bayheim or Calipari, Juwan Howard was in the NBA for you know, 20 freaking years. And, uh, you know, Holtman, he, he's shown that he's done a great job. Izzo, gosh, I can't believe we didn't say anything about Izzo. But yeah, you would think that these guys that have great 
success producing or either or either having experience with getting guys in the NBA would be better for these athletes. But then again, I too don't really know any of the G League coaches or anything or who they are, so I don't know how they they develop. We are going to go to our last topic of the day. Nebraska and Northwestern was announced today. They're set to play in Dublin, Ireland to open the 2022 season on August 27th. That is a Northwestern quote-unquote home game. They follow that up where they go immediately to Bloomington to play Indiana before hosting Duke. So, I mean, that's kind of a tough start to a season, especially with all that travel. Then you flip it on the other side, Nebraska. They start that year potentially 3-0 and before they host Oklahoma instead of going to Norman. Uh, their next two games before OU being North Dakota and Georgia Southern. I guess I just wanted to hear your guys' thought. This was, at least to me, it kind of came out of left field. I didn't even know that there were talks for there to be a Dublin game like this. The only one I can even think of is when I think Notre Dame played Navy about five years or so, and it was a game that ended up kicking off here, I want to say like 9 or 10 in the morning. So it kind of took me by surprise, but I just want to hear what you guys were thinking about that. This is one of those games where it's really cool, but also you're really glad that it's not your favorite team playing because the 9.30 kickoff is a little too early for me, probably playing in uh, a not-so-nice stadium with grass turf. It just it all just seems really weird to me. It's like when the Big Ten initially started saying that they were going to start playing games on Friday nights and Monday nights or, or whatever, I was like, oh my gosh, no way. You know, back when I was a Michigan fan, I was like, ah, you know, they're not going to put Michigan on a Friday night. They're not going to put Michigan on a Monday night. I, I just did not like the thought of that, especially for, for something that's like really not a big game. Now, Nebraska and Northwestern might end up being a big game at the end of the year in terms of the implications of that game, but how many people are going to tune into Nebraska and Northwestern to open the year in Dublin, Ireland? I, I don't know. My question, so is the, the Big Ten is trying, I'm all for it, you know, trying to expand the game and, and open it to more people, but if that's their goal, no offense to Nebraska or Northwestern, but... I would not be sending those two teams to try and engage more people in in the sport. I guess I would try to send two, you know, a better game. I don't, I don't care who it is, just a better game overall for people who are new to the sport or trying to learn the sport to watch. So I looked it up, actually. Dublin is five hours ahead of us. So if they kicked off at 3.30 their time it would be 10 30 our time so talk about a nasty i mean i don't even know how you get hyped for a 10 30 game yeah to your point there hayden real quick sorry wally you know the getting better teams over there is i think easier said than done because when you think about the better teams in the league you think about the ohio states the michigan sometimes the penn states the wisconsin's the Iowas, those are teams that don't want to lose a home game. They're like They don't want to not play at their stadium, whereas you know Northwestern might be more willing to because they don't necessarily have the greatest home field advantage. So I, I don't know for sure if that's a reason why they're sending Nebraska and Northwestern over there, but I 
can't imagine, you know, Gene Smith being so willing to go to Ireland and take a home game away from the shoe. That's just my opinion, though. No, I think you're 100% right. I mean, this is the same Ohio State that just paid Oregon today $3.5 million because they weren't going to Eugene in a home-and-home. This is a lot of money to basically forego for a home game to travel over there. Now, I will say this, humble brag, I did get to go to Dublin when I was uh, in high school with my family, and that stadium, was it's right there in the heart of town. It looks really nice. I didn't get to go into the game, but they host their national soccer games there. They host their Gaelic football games there. It's like a big deal over there. Now, is it going to be the nicest stadium in the world? No, but it's probably better than Evanston. It's probably better than Ryan Field, in all honesty. But yeah, on the on the whole, I think that it's a cool idea. It's just a matter of how many eyeballs are you going to get for a game that potentially could kick early. And yeah, if I mean, this is a, a, a part of the, the world that their big games kick off earlier in the day. So if you're trying to appease to people to come out and watch a Northwestern Nebraska football game that you don't care about, are they really going to be the ones that go out at 8 o'clock their time for a game? No, it's probably going to be the midday. So you're going to have probably a morning kickoff here. I'll, I think we'll be watching, obviously, but how much, if you're from Florida, are you going to be turning on a game at 10 a.m.? I doubt it. So we'll see. It It could be cool. I think it'll be a fun event. I'm sure the players will have a lot of fun getting to travel a little bit. But for me, it really didn't move the needle, I guess, all too much. I think it's going to be one of those situations where we're going to change the subject here in two seconds, and I forget this game exists until August 27th of 2022. Yeah, couldn't agree more, Wally. Well said. That's going to bring us to the end of another episode of Pigskins and Nylon. We'll be back next week on May 28th, where we'll have another edition of our Big Ten Big Five. Next week, we're going to be ranking the top five Big Ten head football coaches in the conference, so you're definitely not going to want to miss that. We're also going to be introducing a new segment to you to end each show. We're going to be answering a couple questions each week that you have for us. They can be about anything. We'll have you guys submit your questions by tweeting at the podcast and using the hashtag AskCHW. That's hashtag AskCHW, which if you haven't figured it out yet, it's the first letter of our three names. Got to give a little credit to the guy who came up with this idea, my buddy from Northeast Ohio and an obvious Pigskins and Nylon listener, Justin Hamlin. We love all your guys' feedback. Please keep the comments coming. Have something you want us to talk about? Let us know. Have something you want us to do differently? Let us know. Make sure to give us a follow on Twitter at P&NPod, Facebook at P&NPod, and Instagram also P&NPod. And boys, before I ask you two if you have any final thoughts, we have our first interview lined up next week. Former Wisconsin Badger punter and a high school classmate of mine, Drew Meyer, will be dropping in to do an interview with us. We really appreciate Drew willing to give a little bit of his time to come in and talk to the three of us, especially with his busy schedule. He's also a member right now of Bronco Mendenhall staff down there in Virginia. So we're going to have plenty to ask him, and I'm sure plenty of fun as well. But anyways, boys, do you have any final thoughts for us? Yeah, I'm excited for that interview next week, Wally. That was a great job of you setting that up. But I just want to say thanks to all the you know support that we get from our fans and our friends and listeners. I've had a ton of fun doing this show each and every time. I every Thursday it's like I I can't wait for the day to get over you know just to get here and do this with you guys and seeing that other people enjoy it too. You know I get texts about the podcast and such. 
It just means that much more. But my final thought is, and you know, I'm not a financial advisor, but go buy Do- Dogecoin before you miss out. Doge to the moon, baby. <laughs> yeah, I kind of want to say the same thing. I'm excited for uh, our first interview next week. That's going to be really fun. Also, I'm going to give a shout out to Justin, Wally's friend, for coming up with the name for the segment. That's great because neither one of us, all three of us, are not creative. So big help. Thank you. And lastly, my wife is bringing me Chinese home for dinner. And so side story, she bought this thing called HelloFresh and she's making me eat these like they're like they're literally baby portions. OK, they're baby portions and there's only enough for like us two and. Anyway, I'm starving, and so she's actually bringing Chinese home, and I'm going to smash on some Chinese before I go to bed, so flip it over to Wally. Final thought, baby. Maddie with a dub. You guys are all eating great out here while I'm just sitting here drinking my water, about to throw in a fake dip. That's my evening food-wise. There's nothing fun on the horizon. I'm going to eat maybe better tomorrow. Campfire, work a little bit of a the magic, send some messages out, hopefully get... Some other interviews lined up here for us. But yeah, otherwise, I'm just fired up to talk to Drew. Guests are going to be how we grow and get better and bigger. So we're really looking forward to that. But otherwise, thank you again to the listeners. These guys already said it. We really appreciate it. This is something we really look forward to doing each week. And the fact that other people enjoy it too. Casey, you said it perfectly. That makes this so much more fun and enjoyable for us. It makes all the work we put into it that much more worth it i guess is the best way to put it anyways last word anybody you got it doge to the moon give us some hashtag questions we need it hashtag questions goes to the moon is right thank you guys we will see you guys next week for episode six of pigskins and nylon